Hi everyone, it's Sophie here. Just wanted to let you know about another podcast I host. It's an S-Pod thing, revisiting every episode of S-Club 7's insane TV show. With a different guest each week, we analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. This is Sex and the City for kids. None of this makes any sense. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge-watched this, anyone who's not on drugs. Listen to It's an S-Pod thing wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket, a podcast about the work of comedy writer, performer, director, and all-round genius, Julia Davis. I'm Sophie Davis, no relation, and on each episode, I'm joined by a guest to talk about a different show created by Julia Davis. In this episode, I'm joined by Stuart Murphy, who launched BBC Three and later moved to Sky, commissioning some of my favourite comedies along the way, including Nighty Night, Hunderby, Camping and lots more. So today on the podcast, I've got a special guest joining me remotely, Stuart Murphy. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, How are you coping in the lockdown? It's a weird time, isn't it? But yeah, it's fine. Watch lots of TV and um, we've got three dogs, two kids and a crazy partner. So yeah, fun times in the house. Wow. So when BBC Three launched in 2003, you were the channel's first controller. So I was just wondering what led you up to that point in your career? Blimey, that's such a good question. So I, I went to a comprehensive in Leeds and um, first in my family to go to university. I went to Cambridge, did geography, had no idea what I was going to do afterwards. Assumed I'd just waltz into a big job. And then when I left, I didn't couldn't get any jobs anywhere. So I was a tea boy at the BBC for about a year uh, in the kind of youth programming bit and then worked in loads of different departments um, and eventually, pretty randomly, was offered a job trying to turn Radio 1 into a TV channel. And then was that did turn into a TV channel, so I was made the boss of that, where I started to commission for the first time. So I did a show with uh, two people who were really silly, pretending to be pop stars um, being interviewed by Jamie Theakston, a show called mm-hmm. Rock Profile. And the two comedians were Matt Lucas and David Walliams, although they were pretty unknown at the time. And then I did that for a few years and then ran a channel called BBC Choice for a few years and then um, was asked to develop BBC Three while running BBC Choice. So it was a couple of years. It was like a stutter start for a few years and a bit dispiriting, if I'm honest, because I was having to keep a team buoyant and try and keep – um, an idea of BBC Three fresh while internally thinking, is this what I'm doing for the rest of my life? Just sort of treading water, trying to invent a TV channel. And then it, yeah, and then it launched and I was, I was put in charge of it. So yeah, it's a funny old thing. So setting up a, a brand new channel where I understand the target audience was uh, young people, really. It sounds like an enormous task. Can you sort of talk me through some of that process behind setting it up? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I'm I'm sort of quite shy and was um, a bit of a geek in my school. So I was never one of the teenagers who went out taking loads of drugs and going clubbing. Um, and I always sort of balked at the idea that that's what young people did all the time. Um, and whereas I was probably a bit more like, I don't know if you've seen Booksmart, the film? Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's uh, or a bit like... In a, in a way, a bit like normal people, but without the sex. So, <laughs> you know, I was kind of geeky, my own weird shape. And um, and I thought, actually, young people are not crazy socialites. 
they're often unsure of themselves, want to be part of something, um, finding their feet in the world and and feeling like no one's really listening to them. So I tried to set the channel up in that image. And I was convinced that you'd get more people watching if you set up a broad church that said, where for anyone who's a bit silly or anyone who's a bit curious and anyone who's a funny shape, as opposed to where for just the cliche of young people, which is some sort of party goer. And so, yeah, like, um, like skins or something. Totally. You know, and I, I don't sort of criticize those views because E4 has done unbelievably successfully aiming at that image of a young person. And, you know, lots of young people who aren't that want to aspire to be that. So they end up watching that, um, but feeling disengaged and a little bit um, disillusioned and not quite good enough. I just wanted to be a lot more broad and kind and forgiving of people's idiosyncrasies. So to that end, we put on broad shows, documentaries, dramas, science, even classical music and maths, a whole kind of eclectic bunch of stuff, and tried to get the glue between the bits um, to be silly and British and eccentric. And so we we went in one of the visits to an animation company called Ardman in Bristol, um, there was a guy called Stefan who, in his lunch break, was creating these these animated characters who were silly. He was using pre-recorded old audio footage and, and putting that with these blob type of characters. And I was like, actually, that looks like a really good interstitial to go in between the programs that we're going to run on BBC Three. There's a woman called Gail Nutney who was a real genius, our head of marketing, who um, is now some high flyer in uh, Davos and stuff. Um, she said, yeah, perfect. And we said to Stefan, what's the name? He went, well, I'm doing it as a hobby. Why don't we just call them blobs? And so we commissioned Ardman to make all the, what's called the idents for BBC Three, which were these little sort of pink blobs that right. would either sing or dance or um, do silly stuff next to a huge monolithic brand of the number three. But it was an odd, an odd job because I was sort of early 30s. Lots of my mates were in jobs that were fun and not stressful. You know, and I was um, sort of going to work in a suit in quite serious meetings and trying to assemble this thing and justify spending £100 million of the public's money on it. So it was a nerve-wracking time. And you sort of had to just try and be yourself and hope for the best and hope people would be nice when you failed and enjoy it when you did well. Yeah, I saw a few um, sort of press releases from the time and they seem to be making quite a thing of how um, sort of young you were. And like you said, yeah, you, you felt like your job was a bit different from other people, you know, your friends and that. It sounds like a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it was odd. I mean, with with my family and my close mates, we've had this discussion that I think there's always an age at which you're the best. And so for me, I've always been a, a sort of 33-year-old. So even when I was eight... Or 12, you know, I've always behaved in a slightly <laughs> middle-aged way, I guess. I said to my brother, what, what do you think your perfect age is? And he was like 15. I said to my dad, how about you? And he was like 12. So I'm quite <laughs> from a sort of juvenile, puerile family. But um, yeah, I've always been a little bit more serious, I guess, like my eldest son. But all, all, the, all the same, it was quite a responsibility because, you know, I remember there was one article in The Sun. You try not to get bothered by press because mm-hmm. people write all sorts of stuff. But there was a guy who was a TV reviewer called Ali, and he used to write things that genuinely made me laugh when I was on the, work, on the way to work and feeling stressed. And in it, 
he took the mick out of a quote where I'd said, ENO will be full of fun, happy stuff. And he was like, oh, come on, typical BBC management. And I just felt like saying, come on, I'm the last thing. I'm a sort of northern and working class shy lad who's trying to say to people, I'm going to do my best and let's hope it works. Please don't make out I'm some bureaucrat who is some cocky, obnoxious you know, a person who's got full of self-confidence. So it was, a, it was a really weird, funny time. And it was going to start a couple of times and then it was delayed. And the late Tessa Jowell was the culture, culture secretary. And she kept insisting on more elements put into BBC Three. There was one meeting where my boss, Jaina Bennett, who was the director of TV, called me into one of the glass offices on the sixth floor where all the management work at the BBC. And I went in and there were lots of senior people. Alan Yentob, who was a kind of, you know, big icon in the BBC bunch of other people and on on the phone it was a conference call to people in the department of culture media and sport and they were saying can you do some science and the whole room would look at me and i'd sort of nod silently and say i'm sure we, i'm sure we could do some science and then say well what about documentaries and they'd look at me and i'd be like yeah i guess so i was just thinking i just want this thing launched i'm gonna go crazy if it doesn't so i kind of capitulated on anything that i'd previously felt strongly about and then they finally signed it off. And the director general at the time was Greg Dyke. He was really gung-ho about life and TV and and representing previously unheard voices, so people who were of colour or gay and lesbian um, or young or really old. And so he was a massive headwind behind me um, whenever I felt unsure what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was um, I was just starting high school in the year that BBC Three launched, so oh. I think I was the ideal age really and yeah I was definitely more of a BBC3 sort of person than a sort of cool channel 4 e4 sort of young person how old would you have been then sophie would you have been like 12 13 uh yeah i remember 2003 was my the year i started high school so yeah i would have been about 12 13 god that's so funny i mean because often you make these things in a bit of a, a vacuum you know you do your commute where no one on the train obviously knows what you do and you hang out with other tv people so you forget ordinary normal people might watch this you know and, uh, mm -hmm. my brother who's a travel agent was um was like, so what is BBC Three? I was like, it's just a TV channel. It was like, so what, is it going to be crap or is it going to be any good? I was like, well, hopefully it's going to be all right. <laughs> you, you forget that even though TV forms a massive part of my life and my upbringing and my early memories, you forget that, that you know, it was a thing when people were, um, were younger. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because things were so different back then. I mean, nowadays, there's just, you know, there's Netflix and everything. So there's TV to watch in all these different places. But yeah, when I was in high school, it was kind of, it was a big thing, you know, that it was for young people, because we didn't have things like Netflix, YouTube wasn't really a big deal back then. And it's so different now. But yeah, I remember most evenings, I think I would have BBC Three on and well we'll come on to some of the the comedies that I really enjoyed in a minute but um shall I tell you um shall I tell you a bit bit of a secret yeah. which I haven't really mentioned before so we we're trying to work out how to launch BBC Three and we thought actually let's go get the biggest person in the world so we just bought the rights to Three is the magic number from the original singers and at the time we were launching Three Mobile was going to launch as well and they wanted to buy Three is the magic number. I think they offered a fortune. We said, actually, we're a public service where BBC, we can't afford anything. And they gave us it for 60 grand because there were a bunch of hippies in California or something. And so they gave us the song. And we're, then we worked, we're thinking, who is the be biggest person in the world to launch it? So we approached Madonna. Oh. And we had a bit of a contact because when I worked at NTV, a guy called Hamish was the a director there. He went out with someone who lived with Madonna. 
And so we thought, well, we can get a letter to Madonna. So we crafted a letter asking her to launch the channel. Greg Dyke signed it. We gave it to Hamish, who gave it to his girlfriend, who gave it to Madonna. And um, we didn't hear anything. And then a couple of weeks later, the note came back and Madonna said, yeah, I'll do it. We're like, what? Madonna's going to launch the channel. <laughs> well, this is incredible. And she had the album about to come out called Music. So she wanted to sing her song on the launch night. We're like, yeah, yeah, of course. And on the posters, we'll include Madonna on the posters, obviously. And so we thought, well, who else can we launch it with her? Because she's American and it's this channel has an emphasis on Britishness. So we went to Ricky Gervais and we dropped him a note and said, look, we've got Madonna. Um, will you launch it with her? It was like, on one condition, we're like, what's that? And he said, we thought it might be money. And, and he's not, in my experience, he's not like that. And he went, no, it's that she will read my script word for word and you will transmit it unedited. <laughs> like, okay, we're going to launch at seven o'clock on, uh, I think, the 3rd of the 3rd, 2003. We actually launched a bit earlier, as it turned out, but, but that was the plan. So I, we waited a week and then we got in the fax it was the day of faxes in the fax machine next to my desk at work we got a fax through that had ricky's script and it was a page and a half and um and it was this so it's madonna comes out with the guitar singing music makes the people come together or whatever and then from behind um her comes out ricky gervais and says who are you and she says i'm madonna and he goes who the fuck is Madonna? So I was trying, I'm like, come on, it's a seven o'clock transmission. We can't use the F word. And she says, well, who the fuck are you? He says, I'm Ricky Gervais. At least I'm British. You're old and American. And she says, fuck off. And she, she walks off and he goes, slut. And that was the script. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was like, this is insane. So, so I said to him, okay, we'll run it. Thinking I'll just find a way around. <laughs> we'll transmit it at nine o'clock or something. And so I went to Greg Dyke, my boss's boss, and said, this is the script, and showed him. He started laughing. He went, yeah, go for it. If you think it's the right thing, go for it. So we sent it to Madonna. About two weeks later, we got a note back saying, yes, I'm going to do it. We were like, what? <laughs> this is crazy. And for lots of people, particularly young women, the word slut is akin to the C word. You know, it's massively mm. offensive. And uh, you have a tier of offensive words and and. Slut was the same as the C word for young women. And um, anyway, she agreed to it. And so we were all planning on going ahead. And then randomly, uh, and we also offered her a million pounds, which we've never talked about publicly, but um, for what it's worth. And, um, and randomly, two weeks later, she said, I'm pulling out. And so Ricky pulled out. And so we ended up getting Johnny Vaughan to launch it. And his, <laughs> as, as it turns out, his show was due to transmit at, I think, nine o'clock on that Thursday. Right. But yeah, it was mad. And she ended up doing a music video with Ali G in the back of the big limo, singing, singing the song music. But it was really weird. I wish I'd kept the script, but I remember it, per, you know, perfectly. Wow. <laughs> we, we can't get Madonna. There's the obvious next choice, Johnny Vaughan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So obviously launching the channel, you commissioned the first comedies for BBC Three. And I guess that sort of brings us to Nighty Night because that was <laughs> one of the first ones. Um, what do you remember about that happening? <laughs> so... So when, when BBC Three was officially announced, um, I was really conscious that this could be like a proper moment in the sense that when I grew up, BBC Two was really important to me as a kid and, you know, with the young ones and a bunch of comedies. And so I was really aware in a perhaps a strange way that this could be a big moment in telly. So 
I thought, I wonder who my first phone call should be with. <laughs> it's sort of a bit of a pretentious thing to think. But anyway, so my first phone call was to um, Henry Normal. I didn't know him. He was running a TV company called Baby Cow. It was called mm-hmm. Baby Cow because Steve Coogan was his business partner. He did a character called Pauline Calf, and the baby cow is a calf. So, so right. I, I didn't, I didn't realize that was where the name had come from. That makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, it took me a while. Someone had to explain it to me. But um, <laughs> so I phoned Henry Normal and said, "Hi, you don't know me. My name's Stuart Murphy. Um, I, I'm running BBC Three, and." The comedy I love more than any other comedy I've ever seen is a show called Human Remains, and I understand you make it. It was like, yeah. I said, I, I want the second series of Human Remains. He, he was like, really? People have ummed and ahed about it. I was like, yeah, no question. I want the second series. And the way commissioning works in TV, sort of on the right-hand side, you have the producers, either BBC or independent producers. In the middle, you have commissioners. And on the left, you have the channel heads. And I was a channel head on the left. And so you you chat to the experts in the middle, the comedy or factual or drama producers, and they in turn speak to the producers on the right. And so, so I said to the comedy people, Mark Freeland and Lucy Lumsden, you know, I, I really want the second series of Human Remains. So they chatted to um, Baby Cow. And to be honest, Sophie, I didn't hear anything for about a year, a year and a half, and thought it just... You know, life took over. It was a busy, busy job. And so I didn't think anything more of it. And then mm. one day Mark gave me a script and said, we've got this. I was like, oh, okay. What's it? What is it? He went, it's from Julia. I was like, what, Julia Davis? He said, yeah. And I said, I asked for the second series of Human Remains. He went, honestly, just read it. Mm. And so I read the first scene where her and Kevin Eldon's character uh, hearing that it's cancer. She says, I can't believe it. This is terrible. Kevin Eldon says, well, it is me that's got the cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was like, whoa, blimey. You know, my, my partner at the time, her mum had cancer. And so we were sort of living through the awful reality of someone you love having cancer. And um, and anyway, I, but still, I read the rest of the script and was like, this is unbelievable. So went back to the comedy people, said, this is amazing. They had a read through and I think they commissioned a pilot saying that they could back out if they didn't like it. They never told me that. I assumed we were going straight to series, which rarely happens. Mm. But they showed me the first thing I saw of it was the bit where Julia was dancing in a therapy group to a Marillion (laughs) song. And my brother used to listen a lot to ACDC and Whitesnake and Marillion, Iron Maiden. And when I saw her dancing to that, I was like, this is amazing. So um, if there was in any doubt, we're like going straight to series. Mark has since said it's the only script where he hasn't thought that he should change any single word at all. Uh, It's one of my favorite series of all time. And because I knew I was going to chat to you today, I've been watching... um, the series all over again. I mean, I'm horrified at what went out in the second <laughs> series. <laughs> the, you know, one time I was, when, when the second series went out, again, this is, I'm being confessional because, you know, because I really like your podcast. And, um, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> and also because it's not, nothing to do with my job at the moment, but I'd, I'd never, I hadn't actually seen the episode until it was being transmitted. And it was the one where they're trying to tip a roast dinner 
<laughs> in, into her vagina um, because it might have sperm on it. And I can remember getting a text from Mark Freeland, who was the head of comedy, and it just said, oh, and then the next text was my, and the next text was God. And I, I felt like throwing up because as the controller, you're the last port of call on all taste and decency. And I thought, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. I'd taken my eye off the ball. I hadn't bothered to watch it. And this was just... <laughs> Oh, anyway. <laughs> it's impressive how it still holds up as something really shocking now. And I mean, you know, it's nearly, fi- it's about 15 years old now. It is I think. not. Is it really? I mean, yeah, um, early to about 2005 ish. Wow. And yeah, I mean, and you could watch some comedies from then and maybe think it was shocking because it was, you know, it hadn't aged well or it was dated or something. But I feel with Nighty Night, it's shocking as it was originally intended and I don't think it's dated at all really and yeah it's impressive that it's still just as kind of surprising now when you're watching it going oh my god no what's happening I mean it's unbelievable I mean the first series you know there's that theory you'll know more about this than me because you're such a comedy fan but you know there's a theory that in America people like their comedy heroes to be aspirational like friends yeah whereas in Britain we like them to be trapped either physically trapped like porridge or um, kind of emotionally trapped like, um, uh, you know, Leonard Rossiter stuff mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, because it's all about class and the rigidity of the British class system. And so the first series where she was physically trapped in a little British cul-de-sac, desperate to find the person she loved, could never quite manage it, felt more claustrophobic than the second series where she literally got in a car and drove to Devon. And so yeah. we debated lots about whether she had, punctured the bubble. I don't think she had at all, but it was a kind of interesting discussion point for comedy fans, you know. Yeah, the two series are quite different from each other. I mean, you know, doing this podcast, I chose to split series one and series two into Mm. two different episodes with different guests because they do seem like such different entities. And yeah, like you said, series one is a little bit um, more just in this little cul-de-sac you know lots of scenes in the house you know having dinner and that sort of thing and then series two there's a crazy sort of um therapy group there's lots of scenes at the beach it's almost like a sort of um you know when there's a sitcom and then they all go on holiday for a film version or something it's a bit like uh let's take the characters somewhere else and see how they react. Um, Definitely. Do you remember at what point the second series was commissioned? Yeah, so I think within two episodes of the first series. um, So, you know, normally you wait for a series to finish and then about a month for the research experts to get all the information together on what the audience age was um, and, uh, you know, what time, how it rated. I seem to remember, I think we transmitted Nighty Night at, uh, firstly at 10.30 and then we used mm. to repeat it at nine o'clock. At 10 o'clock, we had a repeat of EastEnders. Sorry, so we would have repeated it, at, uh, started it at 11 and then repeated it the following day at nine. And I think mm. at 11, it got something like 90,000 viewers and so not very many at all. Um, and then mm. I think the repeat at nine o'clock got sort of 20, 30,000 viewers. So in, res- in, in ratings terms, it didn't work. But the buzz around it was massive. And I was believed that, you know, the BBC's role is to, you know, the, the public funding of the BBC allows you to commission things and f- commission things that people don't yet know they love and to have a relative mm-hmm. immunity to ratings, but commission them because they are creatively rewarding and the right thing to do sure. so I didn't really care about the ratings I just thought it was utterly extraordinary 
<laughs> and appalling. And in, I had such a sort of sort of determination to try and bring on unheard voices. It felt that there was Victoria Wood and a couple of other female voices, but there were, you know, there weren't, it wasn't 50-50. It was dominated by white, mainly Oxbridge men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was, I was desperate to get, at the time we'd done a show called Three Non-Blondes with three black female comedians. Um, yeah. You know, we'd done... Uh, I think around that time we commissioned Pulling. Um, yeah. We did a whole load of female comedy and it was going to have to be pretty atrocious not to go again with it. But as it turned out, I thought it was it was incredible. Yeah, so um, as well as Nighty Night, I wanted to just ask you about some other sort of um, early BBC Three comedies, sort of on the weird end of the <laughs> spectrum, because that's always what I was into, really. Uh, so The the Mighty Boosh. <laughs> <laughs> so The Mighty Boosh, that's so nice you picked that out. So... Um, so when I was running a channel called UK Play, which was the BBC's rival to MTV, that had Rock Profile on it, there was a big agent called Chiggy. Her actual name's Caroline mm-hmm. Chignall. And she looks after yes. everyone from, I'm sure you know, Vic and Bob, Harry Enfield, a bunch of others. And she looked after Chris Morris, who I was obsessed with, and trying to get Blue Jam onto UK Play. At that time, BBC Three hadn't mm-hmm. launched. And so I phoned Chiggy. She, um, we hired Harry Enfield to do a little music show. And she said, do us a favor. Can you meet these two people? Uh, they're two comedians. They're in a show called, they're in a group called, I think, The Pod, like a dolphin pod. Um, mm-hmm. So we met them. They came in. I think I was more nervous than them because I was all new in this role, slightly out of my depth. I th- I think they were nervous as well. And when they were describing the series they wanted to do, I was like, oh, give me more detail. I'm a bit annoying like that, Sophie. I was like, oh, describe it to the nth <laughs> degree. And um, they, I think they thought I was either being sarcastic or being annoying. And so it was quite a bad meeting. And it was Julian and Noel uh, who mm. do the Mighty Boosh. When they left, I was like, well, they were a bit stroppy with me. I was only asking what type of van they were going to be in. And, and, so, and also, <laughs> I remember really clearly, because they were proper bohemian, <laughs> they really smelled of sweat. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so I, I was a bit like, oh, God, you know, I'm still <laughs> finding my feet in this job. When I got to BBC Three, it was pitched again with um, a pilot called The Arctic Boosh. And mm-hmm. I was like, look, I just don't get them. I, I didn't smoke dope. I didn't really get Vic and Bob and Shooting Stars. Uh, but I was like, loads of people love them. Go for it. So they did a pilot. And in the pilot of The Arctic Boosh was a song about how cold it was where Noel rep- pretends to be Jack Frost and Julian is yeah. singing a rap. And it was so inventive. I remember seeing that and saying again to Mark and Lucy, this is 100% what we should do. I don't get it, but let's definitely do it. And then the first <laughs> series delivered uh, was in the zoo. They had like a, a, a school. I'd done lots of, this sounds so pretentious, but I'd read lots of Brecht and it was about distancing mm-hmm. technique called Frendham's technique. And so when they came on at the start and introduced it in front of a curtain and then did a traditional sitcom thing in a zoo, it was part surreal, part badumtish jokes, and then ended mm-hmm. it in front of the curtain. It, it felt like the perfect little curio. After the first episode, it rated through the roof with 13 to 18 year olds um, oh, yeah, that was probably me. <laughs> I mean, I think everyone fancied Noel. Everyone loved how surreal yeah. <laughs> Julian was. <laughs> and um, the world was, the zoo was contained and little. Um, Bolo was funny. He's, you know, 
all the character, like Rich Fulcher was absolutely amazing. There was a dance he did from behind his desk, um, yeah. which was just one of the funniest things. So we quickly went to second series and then, and then, you know, their tour was selling out. The DVD sales would get the figures through. They were through the roof as well. Um, and then for the third series, I phoned the person who ran, I think it was um, Talkback Thames, who had the distribution rights, I think, a woman called Alex Mahan, who's now Chief Executive Channel 4, and said, can we transmit the next episode on mobile phones straight away? And it was at a time when mobiles were just starting to run video. And she was like, mm-hmm. yeah, why not? And it was a proper breakthrough, actually. She was really visionary and allowed us to do it. And so lots of we, – we just kind of caught the wave of people – sampling content on their phone or on online and it was great because it made bbc3 feel multimedia and modern and yeah and and, and actually I'm, i've got to say sorry i should i should say that um noel and julian were so lovely absolute sweethearts really sh- self-effacing and silly and interested and intelligent i sort of really was smitten by both of them and I thought they were just brilliant. Yeah, I, I was obsessed with the Mighty Boosh. <laughs> I think I think it was actually the Mighty Boosh that sort of led me to um Nighty Night because I didn't watch Nighty Night when it was originally on. I think I was a little bit young. But yeah, I got really into the Mighty Boosh and then I started looking up sort of related things like you know, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. <laughs> and then I think I got to Nighty Night, possibly because of the Julian-Julia connection, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think that's what led me to it originally. But yes, I had the uh, school exercise book with pictures of Noel Fielding on it at the time. Oh, how nice. How cool. I mean, it's <laughs> so funny because we'd look at Channel 4. I wanted BBC Three to be the best bits of Channel 4. And, you know, Garth Marenghi was amazing. I think, you know, Matt Berry was incredible you know, in later years, like Toast and um, uh, Year of the Rabbit is one of my favorite TV series. You know, yes. I was just like in awe of that type of comedy. Um, it felt like late night BBC Two comedy. So, you know, I thought we're just going to commission so much comedy. We're going to eventually we'll get a hit. Um, and even if we don't, it's going to make me laugh because pretty quickly I got the hang of the Mighty Boosh and found it funny. Um, mm-hmm. Vic and Bob, who I started to get, you know, we brought back shooting stars with Will, uh, Will Self. And then Vic and Bob said they wanted to do a comedy called um, Vic and Bob's Secret Victorian Garden. <laughs> we commissioned that. They then delivered a show called Catrick instead with Matt Lucas that was part singing, part yeah. not. Um, so lots of these things sort of happened by accident in the sense that you want to back talent and then if they choose to do something completely different, have faith that it's going to be good and give them the support and, you know, occasionally sort of say where you'd like it to land, but try not to be too um, detailed and, and let them do their thing. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, you already, you mentioned rock profiles. Um, one comedy that's a bit of a, a kind of strange one is Little Britain, I guess, because on the surface, it's a very weird show, but then it ended up becoming this massive mainstream hit. I mean, did you expect that at all? Or did you commission it thinking, oh, this will be like the mighty boosh. It will be a weird little show that only a small number of people get into. God, that's such an interesting question. So, um, so when, so I've read a, a couple of the books by, I read one by Boyd Hilton and I read, um, I read another one that mentioned it and they described the genesis of Little Britain in a way that I just didn't recognize. And I'm not saying they, that, that they're not telling the truth. I don't mean that. What I mean is my, my memory of that time was so 
it was so full on trying to make sure the channel launched that I genuinely don't know if I either misremembered stuff or if other stuff happened behind the scenes that I'm not aware of. I mean, my my how I remember the, um, Little Britain coming about was uh, I was in an office in Mortimer Street in central London that was separate to where where the rest of BBC TV was at that time. I was on BBC Choice. We'd just done uh, taken a show called Doctor Terrible's House of Horrible, a Steve Coogan comedy from mm-hmm. the BBC Two. We're going to run. They gave it to us on BBC Choice. And then a, an amazing comedy producer called Mivanwi Moore. That's the reason the, the barmaid in Little Britain is called yeah, Mivanwi. Yeah. So Mivanwi Moore came along. She went, look, we've made this comedy with Matt and, uh, Matt and David, who she was very close to. We made it for Radio 4. Can you have a read? Uh, can you have a listen? She gave me the DVD. And um, I was so busy, I, I just never bothered to listen to it. And um, so she kept pestering me. And eventually I was like, oh, let's just do a pilot. She said, the only thing we can't do that's in the radio pilot is a, a sketch called Chocolate House or The Sweet House or something. Um, <clears throat> I was like, yeah, no problem. I mean, I hadn't listened to it. Then I slightly fell for my fan wee and fancied her. This is when I was straight. And so I, <laughs> I presented that I'd listened to it. So we commissioned the pilot. And then really quickly, I think she said, look, they're not just going to do a pilot. They want to do a series as well. I was like, okay, fine. She said, they'll only do it if it's repeated on BBC Two. I was a bit pissed off about that because I was like, actually, they at that time, I was like, come on. I've commissioned a series. It's more than BBC Two had done. But we said, fine, it can repeat on BBC Two. And then, um, uh, and then we commissioned it. And so when I got the pilot back and the first scene of the pilot was a judge sitting on the stairs with um, – the voice of Doctor Who at the time, you know, <laughs> Thingy Baker, saying, yeah. uh, Britain, 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 British just, justice system is the best in the world. And if you don't agree, you're either uh, black, uh, poor, or a gay. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, again, I was a bit panicked by it. But my boss at the time was Mark Thompson, who ended up becoming director general and now runs the New York Times. He'd run BBC Two. And he was an amazing mentor in that he said, unless this stuff is making you nervous, you're not getting it right. So if you're confident and comfortable, you're not pushing it enough. So you've got to have sleepless nights about this stuff. And so I kept that as a kind of rule of thumb and would always make sure we pushed stuff as much as possible so when i had meetings with matt lucas and david williams i would suggest a whole bunch of things they were very polite and sweet and they'd listen to it and say oh it's not quite what we want to do you know it kind of humored me um but um when it came to seeing the finished product and having to approve taste and decency like the puking or the jokes about being black or lesbian or gay or uh, a dwarf um i always went on the rule of it's got to be on the edge and if it insults everyone, then it's fine. If it just picks on one group, then it's not. But if it insults everyone, actually, in a way, it's kind of flattering because they're saying, look, as a community, you're strong enough to take take a piss take. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought it'd be big. I didn't think it'd be enormous. It felt like Dick Emery to me, which I love. Um, but, you know, after the first episode went out, it had all the followers of Radio 4 listen to it. And it was, it was, yeah, it was massive. Um, and then really quickly, the second series was huge. I think the third series went on to BBC One. It was just absolutely enormous. There's a theory that if playgrounds quote a comedy, then it goes exponentially big. 
And you mm-hmm. could sense that kids were saying, I'm the only gay in the village, or I'm a lady, or it was just catchphrase heavy. Um, it was mm-hmm. at a time yeah. when Catherine Tate was doing her show, so we were a bit worried that who would win another catchphrase battle, but there was room for both, as it turned out. So Yeah, yeah. There was definitely sort of a equal in my school, the two <laughs> yeah. of them, really. <laughs> right, cool. You sort of that i've been talking a bit about you know the very weird comedies but there's um others as well and one that's i guess julia davis related because she's in it um but is very different in terms of tone is gavin and stacy and obviously that became very big for bbc3 so uh what do you remember about that pitch coming in ah approach to BBC Three was either go niche so we just appeal to 16 to 24 year olds or make stuff that is so big that lots of people will watch it including lots of 16 to 24 year olds and I felt because 16 to 24 year olds were not a hermetically sealed group we shouldn't go niche we should go broad and so that meant we we said to people we're open to ideas that could sit on BBC One but quite late night so BBC One with a twist at the time Jonathan Ross had just been doing chat shows at 10.30 in the evening on BBC One. So we were like, kind of naughty BBC One would be great. Um, And so we got a pitch that was, uh, I think, a one-page pitch about a marriage. It was a marriage between a a woman in Wales and a lad in Essex. I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's out there in the books and stuff um, that Mm. they've written. And um, and so it came in, and uh, James and um, Ruth came in to, to pitch it, with Mark there and Lucy there running comedy and talked it through. It was so clearly described that you could absolutely see yourself there. And at the end of the pitch, I said, actually, we don't do one-offs, but why don't you make this the last episode of the series? And actually, why don't you do a show at nine o'clock about the Essex guy and his family and every night we'll do a separate show at 9.30 about the Welsh girl and her family? And so it's two entirely separate comedies for five episodes. But on the sixth episode, combine it with the wedding. And I was a big fan of Cheers and I'd also watched Seinfeld. And I thought, actually, this could be really playful and fun and other other channels might not try it. Anyway, they thought it was a dreadful idea. Um, (laughs) But they went off to write the comedy that led up to the final episode of the wedding. And I remember clearly, really clearly getting the script of the first episode and reading it and it was so warm and you know on a script you can you you read so many that you can end up um sensing whether it's biting or acidic or warm and you know and it was just so warm not every scene ended with a punchline you could see the characters really well it had lots of catchphrases in it without being arch and hammy that um uh, I, I emailed Ruth and James and said, I think this is going to be the best thing that BBC Three has ever done. Um, and emailed the comedy department, the comedy commissioners and said, we have to go straight to series. And yeah, and it was amazing when it delivered. It was everything I hoped it would be. It was Ruth as a person anyway is totally adorable. James is full of energy, so funny. Is kind of, uh, at the time he was... Um, really innocent, whereas now he's a lot more successful. So I guess less innocent and more knowing. But at the time, he was the best mate you wanted to have. And um, he still is, by the way, but in a different way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing. I, I w- loved it. And that was a proper monster hit. 
Yeah, and I guess it, it probably did bring some um, maybe a bit older viewers to BBC Three too, because I remember actually my parents watched it from the very beginning before I did, because um, I'm Welsh and it's I think pretty much the entire population of Wales was on board with Gavin and Stacey from the beginning, you know, because it was about a Welsh family and that's quite, it's not something we see on TV all the time. So I remember my parents were watching this program on BBC Three before I'd even heard of it. It's so funny. Like when there was, there was lots of talk in TV about whether um, you should make things quite broad, make things big by being broad and generic. So when I worked at MTV, they if ever they had two images on screen and MTV was on one side and Hollywood was on the left, they wouldn't say where MTV was. They'd just say MTV Centre. CNN mm. used to do the same, but just say CNN Centre. And actually, they realised, and we realised at the BBC, that actually you could go massively broad by being quite locally specific. So NTV started mm. to say NTV Camden, and CNN would say CNN Atlanta. And we tried to be locally specific on a dra- comedy drama called Grease Monkeys, based in Northern Ireland, uh, based in Birmingham, sorry. But, you know, it wasn't specific enough. Emmerdale obviously has loads of Yorkshire phrases that you wouldn't have outside Yorkshire, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And that was one of the brilliant things about Gavin and Stacey, that straight away a massive amount of people thought, this is us, I just get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people were talking about a kutch, I think it is, or a cuddle. Yeah, a kutch, um, yeah. Sorry, a kutch. God, that's terrible, I still don't know. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I totally loved it. And this probably sounds a bit wet, but I really, really miss seeing those characters. But mm-hmm. There was a scene when uh, Nessa was drying, was washing her vibrator in the kitchen sink <laughs> in the background with all the washing up in, in it. And yeah. so, so it had that amazing balance of basically being like a comedy called Just Good Friends or... Um, you know, just a warm, loving comedy while having a really deep, dark twist in the background. I was also a massive fan of Alison Steadman. So I used to, the first time I watched Nuts in May, I was watching it, there was a little candle light on the telly and I was laughing so much I didn't clock that the candle had burnt through and had set the telly on fire a little bit. <laughs> and um, and that's how, that's how me and, you know, mother of my children met really laughing at that and um then had the babies and got married but anyway yeah so we we love Alison Steadman so when they got her that was amazing yeah she's brilliant and obviously um Julia gets in there as well every now and then oh she's so funny it's so good um so one last BBC3 related thing before we move on to uh Sky is uh the most niche thing so far um ADBC a rock opera (laughs) Um, For anyone listening to this who hasn't heard of it, um, I did a a special Christmas episode of the podcast about it, so I encourage people to go and listen to that. But it's basically a kind of spoof rock opera written by Matt Berry and Richard Iowadi, and the cast includes them, along with uh, Julia Davis, Julian Barris, etc., And I wanted to talk to you about this because I love ADBC. I watch it pretty much every Christmas. But there is very little information available on it uh, about how or why it was made. So go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So there'd been a big comedy called The Cruise of the Gods or Cruise of the Gods, which had been a one-off two years before, which had been a massive hit. And it had been, um, because it was a one-off, it didn't require much booking. 
it didn't take up much of people's calendars. So major talent, a major cast agreed to be in it. And, uh, you know, the BBC had a deal with um, Baby Cow to make a whole lot of shows. When they did Cruise of the Gods, they thought, actually, if this is a standard of cast we can get, maybe we should also look at doing other one-offs. So I loved Matt Berry. And, you know, I was I, I was born in 1971. So that sort of daft 70s, terribly filmed, corny shit, that, um, particularly sort of semi-religious, a little bit over-sexualized, really badly scanned musicals, really resonated. I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of musicals, if I'm honest, even though in my current job, I, I like the good ones. <laughs> But, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's some really appalling, corny lines in some musicals and um, and they're done without irony, which I just so I don't kind of get most of them. Um, and, um, and yes, yeah, so the script came through. Um, Rich Fulcher was in it. Um, actually, I rewatched it recently, Sophie, and um, Sophie mm-hmm. Winkleman's in it, who ended up having a... Yeah, loads of people. Lucy Montgomery. Lucy Montgomery, and, uh, yeah. Noel Fielding, obviously. Noel Fielding um, was in it. Um, Julie was in it. Yeah, I mean, it, so when we when we, we saw the script, we're like, why not? Actually, you've got to back producers who you find funny. You know, I'm such a massive fan of Paul and Pauline Calf and um, and Alan Partridge that you know, if if Henry Normal and Steve Coogan. Um, and Lindsay Hughes, who was the other producer, if they say something's funny, I'm like, that's good enough for me. I, you know, they brought me some of my funniest moments. I love four weddings, three fights, and a funeral. I think it is. So they thought it was funny. So I was like, let's go for it. And when it delivered, it was quite an odd one, but I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I actually prefer it now than I did at the time. Um, right. It didn't really rate, but um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I think we only transmitted it once or twice. <laughs> Yeah, it's another one of those things that I only came to it via being a massive fan of the Mighty Boosh mm-hmm. and just sort of seeing what else people had been in. And yeah, I, I bought the DVD. I think on Wikipedia it says that it was sort of shown once and never repeated. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but um, yeah, it's... A... I think we showed it a couple of times, but not very many. Um, there, was, mm-hmm. there was a real thing as well that lots of comedians want to be rock stars and lots of rock stars want to be funny. Um, and yeah. so that overlap, I think Julia actually, I thought, but I might have misremembered this, that she did a, a half-hour pilot singing as Jill Turrell, um, or Turrell, um, uh, and I, th- I thought she'd done it, but I couldn't find it anywhere in, in my bookshelf. So maybe I misremembered it. But anyway, lots of lots of the comedians obviously are really into their music. The Mighty Boosh mm-hmm. had a massive rock band following as well. Yeah, and uh, Rich Daiwadi is a surprisingly good singer. Really good singer, yeah, really funky. <laughs> yeah, I was impressed. I, I, yeah, I love ADBC. I think I want more people to watch it. That's the main takeaway from this podcast. <laughs> Did you fancy Richard Daiwadi as much as he fancied Noel Fielding then? Not, not when I was younger, but now more so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, not so much in, I guess, more from things like Travel Man rather than when he's playing a character like, um, you know, Moss or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you moved to Sky in 2009, initially Sky One and then kind of overseeing all of the Sky entertainment channels. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and launching Sky Atlantic as well. Yeah. Um, am I right in thinking that Sky didn't really sort of do original comedy and then that was what you started? Is that correct? Well, it, yeah, it's sort of that. I mean, they, they did actually do original comedy. So they did um, Al, uh, Al Murray, Bob Landlord. They did uh, Harry Enfield on oh, the boat. Yes, okay. um, they also did, um, what else did they do? They did quite, quite a lot of comedy or... This is supposed to sound insulting, but drama that was funny, like Dream Team, had a sense of humour. And um, okay, so they had done some stuff, um, and I think they'd done one-off concerts and things. Um, yeah, I looked on um, the the British Comedy Guide website it has a thing where you can search comedies by channel and by year. And I was looking at Sky, and it was yeah, I did see the odd thing pop up, but it seemed a bit sort of sparse up until about two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, and then. It kind of, you know, there's a, there was more comedies happening after that. It seemed. Yeah, I think I think Sky strategically, strategically, had thought mm-hmm. actually what they need to do is make their own stuff and and be able to sell their own stuff, and Britishness was popular. So I think that's why I was hired, as you say, initially to do Sky One. So um, so I phoned Henry Normal and said, "Can we do get Gavin and Stacey? I'll offer three series and a movie, and we offered ten million quid." Um, wow. and that, that probably, uh, it wasn't just in fees, you know, it was to make all, all of it. And, um, mm-hmm. and I can remember him saying, don't you need to ask them? And as a joke, I went, I am them. And he was like, shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> and he said, I'll call you back. And then so he called me back in like five minutes later and said, actually, no, they don't want to do anymore. And so I was like, wow, that's amazing. And in some ways it was, um, incredible to think they are that, they have that much integrity they know yeah. when a series is done, so wow. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, I'm going to pick off each of the characters from Gavin and Stacey. So we started to speak to James Corden. We got asked him to do a panel show that was about sport, right. and that became a league of their own. Um, spoke to Ruth about characters she loved, and she talked about a woman who was a single mum who was doing her best, and actually she always won. She always did well, mm-hmm. and that kind of fitted with the Sky sensibility that lots of the audience who have Sky are hardworking and they want to feel good about the world, particularly good about their subscriptions, so always end on a bit of a high. So we did Stella, which was the biggest comedy Sky had ever done for that time. Then I phoned Joanna Page, his agent, got her to do a, an animal show, and I think we also got Matt Horn in something, and I can't remember what now because I'm tired. Um, but um, I thought if I can't have Gavin and Stacey, I'm going to try and get get them individually yeah and why not? then we commissioned loads of other stuff i wanted the in-betweeners so i phoned the in-betweeners producers to try and steal that from e4 and channel 4 i wanted celebrity juice <laughs> so i phoned keith lemon uh, uh, you know lee francis's lot and offered them an absurd amount of money to come to sky but they wouldn't so <laughs> yeah i just went all over the place trying to get the best people and then i hired lucy so uh, lucy lumsden who was the head of comedy at the bbc i poached and got her to be head of comedy at sky you know, I phoned the head of entertainment at ITV and at the time, I think it was, and got him to be our head of entertainment. And so just poached all the best best commissioners in Britain, really, uh, in my view. Yeah, sure. And then um, I guess uh, Hunderby was one of the first ones as well. <laughs> yeah. So was Hunderby Sky One or Sky Atlantic? I can't remember. Was it Sky One? Uh, I think Atlantic. Was it Atlantic? I think. Yeah, I mean, so I'm such a fan of Julia Davis. You know, she could sneeze and I would commission it. Um, I, th- <laughs> I said to Henry 
regularly because I'd see Henry probably for lunch, probably once a month or something. And have you have you ever met him, Sophie? No, I've um, spoken to him a little bit on Twitter, but I haven't met him. No. Oh, so he's lovely. He's northern, funny, uh, kind of avuncular uncle type, piss takey. He laughs a lot. Mm-hmm. He's really kind of generous. You know, he will. He'd be happy to be the butt of someone's joke if it was funny. You know, he's just a funny guy and lovely. Mm-hmm. And so I'd regularly say, what's Julia thinking of? And Lindsay, who's the other exec producer, Lindsay Hughes, would say, oh, Julia's thinking about doing a period thing, a period drama. And I, I seem to remember when they sent me the script, it was about four pages, and it would say things like, washed up on a beach, blah, blah, blah. Then it'd have like <laughs> 10 lines of really specific script. Then it'd have nothing. It'd say, I will fill this bit in and it's silly. Then it would say, <laughs> think he meet, she meets someone she really fancies. And then she'd write line, line by line script for about half a page. And, you know, it, it was hilarious what she'd done because it was just such a mishmash. But we were like, yeah, let's go for it. And I think when there's someone like her, you, um, you'd be crazy not to do it. So commissioned it. And again, it was one of those... A bit like um, with the other stuff or this comedy called Monkey Dust that I did at BBC Three, where almost mm-hmm. every single page of the script had a de- taste and decency issue. It was either paedophile mm-hmm. jokes, sperm jokes, whatever. So um, the, the beautiful thing about Hunderbee is it couched utterly appalling joke, utterly appalling and offensive situations in this amazing language and rhythm. It was so beautiful. It's like poetry, I think. Yeah, the language and it is grace. And yeah, like you said, sort of, um, I can't remember the specific line now, but something about, um, they're talking about how the mother isn't well and she's not been able to go to the toilet. But the oh, way yeah. they phrase it is kind of like, um, oh, I, I think I caught a, wh- a whisper earlier and that sort of thing. You know, it's a lot of dirty jokes. But <laughs> yeah, you talk about it actually on, on the podcast, about which is brilliant, by the way, when you go through all the detail of Thunderbeat. I absolutely love it. Um, it's, it's such a good podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no, that was so long ago. I can't remember what I said now. <laughs> ah, it's brilliant. Yeah, well, I took my two sons. Um, who Max and Josh, who were probably, I don't know, seven and five, maybe. And I drove out to where they were filming it, and we went upstairs to the scene where um, uh, Alex, is it Alex? It's not Alex McQueen. It's, um, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Where he was um, having anal sex with um, uh, the um, Helen the main lead girl. Right, yeah. And so we walked in, I said to the boys, look, this is how TV and filming works. We went in and (laughs) they said, okay, action. And then it was anal sex underneath a duvet. I was like, oh, oh, oh. So we we left really quickly, got in the car. And as we were driving away, Josh said, "Um, what was he doing? Was he trying to hurt her? And Josh was five. (laughs) And Max, who was seven, went, Josh, don't be so silly. He's trying to have a baby. And I was like, I just had to, okay, pause, boys. Let me just try and explain and just get out of that one. Um, you turned up at the wrong moment. Just couldn't have been wrong. Mind you, any scene in that show was wrong. The thing that I just thought was the funny, one of the funniest scenes ever, I mean, there are lots of funny scenes, was the sperm scene was just unbelievable where Rufus, who plays Dr. Fogarty, just had to have yes, an ejaculation yeah. in his face. It was just so offensive and amazing. <laughs> it's like one of the funniest things ever seen. 
And then after that, there was, well, there was the Hunderby specials and camping were sort of around the same time, I think. Yeah. Um, do you remember what was kind of sort of commissioned first, like in the brand new series or Hunderby continuing? Um, there was always a thing with Baby Cow that they'd film a series and they'd just say, Henry would go, well, with a little bit of spare footage, we can make an extra episode for another 50 grand if you want. And so it'd say, you know, it's, it's not for £300,000, it's for the 50 grand. And so it'd always be like, of course, why would we not have an extra episode? And so I think that's why some of the series in Julia's stuff is an odd number, because usually it'd have six or 13, Mm, but sometimes it's seven um, or two specials. Um, So I'm pretty sure the Hunderby was what Henry would describe as leftover footage. Camping came about, we were chatting lots about um, nuts in May and how campsites Mm -hmm. were kind of claustrophobic and Vicky Pepperdine, you know, who plays the nightmare woman, sort of lots of us had discussed how we'd got ourselves in relationships that had people who were constantly on your back type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mean me personally, but lots of us had talked about that stage in your life when you're, you have one of those people around you and and that she pitched this show that had one of those characters in it so that absolutely resonated with lots of us um then it was in a campsite <laughs> and then julia yet again was playing a slightly dirty nasty self-obsessed woman <laughs> and then the same cast came together more or less um yeah so so again it didn't really quite require that much of a pitch i think it was like a two two line chat on a two-line email and then a meeting for a cup of tea and would just say, yeah, let's definitely do it. Yeah, and of course she um, she directed that one as well, so that was a bit of a change too. Yeah. At the time, it's so funny the odd ways that these things happen. I think at the time Channel 4 had a sense that um, it was just Julia doing her weird stuff and they just didn't quite get it in exactly the same way as, you know, I missed out on a whole ton of shows because I just didn't quite get the sensibility. And um, so we were fortunate in that at that time, I think Shane Allen was at, was at Channel 4 and he was doing mm. quite kind of um, uh, white, boy, white boy public school stuff like Peep Show, um, right. which is really, really funny, whereas we were kind of differently focused. Sure. Yeah. Again, this is me sort of gravitating towards the more weird stuff, but this is Ginzy. How the hell did that come about? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, that was just the weirdest show. So, <laughs> blimey. So with Sky Atlantic, that was going to launch about three months earlier than it was intended to. but And the pilot came back for, Sky, for Game of Thrones. I think they'd spent $19 million on it or 90 million pounds, I can't remember. They said they had to reshoot 90% of the pilot. So we delayed the launch of Sky Atlantic a bit and launched with Boardwalk Empire instead. And so we were worried that we didn't have any other comedy and tried to quickly commission comedy that that would feel as authored as lots of the HBO drama. Um, We tried Mm. to do the same in, in... in documentaries as well, we commissioned a documentary series called Fishtown that was trying to be lyrical. Um, what would fail to appreciate was the sort of production standards that HBO had. So, you know, I feel sorry for the This Is Gin C producers because we didn't really give them much money and um, said, just go for it. And so it's the, the oddest, weirdest. I mean, I find it quite funny, but it, it, we should have given them a lot more money to make it amazing production values. 
uh, anyway, yeah, I, th- I think that was a bit of a rush, and it was them being at the right place at the right time. And I think they sent a taster tape that was just extraordinary, so inventive. It reminded me of um, this show we'd done called Monkey Dust, that was an animated sketch show from Harry Thompson's mm-hmm. brain. And later, you know, the, the other thing that was as inventive as that, uh, it was very similar to the Mighty Boosh in that sense. And the other thing, yes. Yeah, I always, I always thought that, yeah, because it even had the sort of little musical segments yeah. as well. And it was the, you know, the two men. I always sort of thought of it as being a little bit like the bouche, but a bit sort of a, Odder. I don't know. I don't, I, yeah, I, I was going to say sort of less sort of trendy, like a bit more yes. like a geography teachers or something. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. At the time, I'd been watching loads of... Um, Flight of the Concords, which I'm obsessed with. Yes. And um, and then later, the other thing that was as inventive as that, I guess, is Yonderland that was, uh, you know, part Muppets, part Horrible Histories and was just from a crazy world. So mm-hmm. I, that, in a bit of the Venn diagram, the kind of crazy stuff, this is Ginsey was at the crazier end of that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also, um, Alan Partridge came over to Sky at some <laughs> point as well. Was that, I guess, was that because of the the pre existing relationship with Baby Cow? Yeah, there was a thing. I really wanted Alan Partridge. We we had this discussion at one point about Alan Partridge launch, launching BBC Three. Okay, uh, and that was before the Madonna Ricky Gervais thing. The I think I've got this right that the intellectual property of Alan Partridge is owned by four people. I think Peter Bain and Amanda Inucci, yeah, Steve Coop, yeah. and Henry Noble. I think, and mm-hmm. so there'd there'd been a reluctance to to you needed to get all four people to agree. I think also as a result, it was quite expensive to do anything, and I think also Steve Coogan felt that spending any time doing Alan Partridge was exhausting because he was such a pain in the ass of a person to be with. <laughs> um, but, you know, the time was, we'd commissioned him to do Paul and Pauline Calf's Cheese and Ham Sandwich for BBC Three. It was like a daft stand-up. Um, and I was so desperate to get Alan Partridge. Gail Nutney, who was the head of marketing at BBC Three, really wanted Alan Partridge. And so it didn't happen all my time at the BBC when we went to Sky, I think the moment he just pa- made a passing comment, we were like, yep, yeah, we will 100% have that, no question. I don't think we could afford it, actually, at the time. So we had loads of wrangles back in the office about finding the budget. But, um, yeah, I, I loved it. And, in fact, I loved it so much I got the book and then got the audio book. And <laughs> I was such a massive fan. Yeah, Alan Partridge just seems to be going from strength to strength, really. It sort of never runs out of steam. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. everyone knows someone who's a bit of an ass. Um, yeah, <laughs> and he was—he's just always uncomfortable, isn't he? Yeah, and now I guess Steve Coogan is the same sort of age that Alan always was, so it's sort of settled into the character even more, I guess. Yeah, and also, there's—have you ever met Steve Coogan, Sophie? No, I haven't. No. So he's funny in that he's a real giggler. Um, so <laughs> he's more giggly than you'd expect. A bit like it's like me name dropping, but it's a bit like Carl Pilkington that is a real giggler mm. at his own jokes. And so there's, there's, a, there's a part of um, Steve that is sweeter and more giggly than Alan. But there's also, I hope you won't mind me saying, but I think there's a part of Steve that is a little bit Alan Partridge, that he's a bit mm-hmm. geeky and a bit awkward and will say things that are just really uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I don't know why I'm saying that. Sorry, it's because it's the end of a very exhausting week. So. <laughs> <laughs>
So um, you you left Sky about sort of four or five years ago, and you're now at the English National Opera. Yeah. Um, was that a conscious thing where you decided I don't want to be in TV anymore, or you just sort of wanted a new thing? Yeah, I'd, I'd um, I suppose I had got a bit I I was definitely aware that you have a moment where you're good at TV and then you should clear off and I didn't want to be one of those people who was hanging around for a while um mm. and just being a bit stale so there was that um there was a thing where uh, David my partner who makes Educating Essex and the Real Marigold Hotel he said oh, I'm feeling a bit hacked off I was like oh come on let's go to the pub we chatted about midlife crisis type stuff. And I said, you know what, actually, yeah, I fancy a change. So the following day I went in and quit um, and left Sky wow. with nothing else to go to. And um, and then I thought, well, I'll try and do stuff, do totally separate stuff. So I thought I, I love theme parks. I wanted to work with disabled kids, wanted to work in charity. Um, and I tried to write some stuff. Um, I sent it to the head of comedy at Sky um, John Montague at the time it took him six months to re- reply back and I thought actually you know what this is just too crushing I'm just not going to um, I just can't be asked so yeah so left TV mm-hmm. and then the thing I had I had a chat about uh, about going to Channel 4 and again it was such a, a sort of horrible experience the conversations um, there that I thought actually you know what I just I just don't fancy TV anymore at least for a while uh, so, so I didn't work for two and a half years and just sat around, um, gave our money away, set up charities, traveled the world, that type of thing, got a dog, got three dogs. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, uh, and then this job came up and I love opera, I applied for it. I love working with eccentric people and people who have a kind of crazy gift. And Eno is full of people who are amazing, who are amazing singers or amazing musicians, incredible designers. So it's a kind of big, epic, jaw-dropping industry to be in. Um, so, yeah, so I've been there two and a half years. Yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> so, and we were talking before about how, you know, you, you weren't just sort of commissioning Julia. You were you were always a fan and you're still a fan now. You know, you've rewatched Nighty Night. Do you think you're just going to keep following her career, you know, enjoying everything she does? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I look at, you know, some of the comedies... There's some amazing comedies on TV now. Like I love, I love Year of the Rabbit. I think there was there was a comedy on mm. BBC Two that was about surgeons set in Dickensian time. Yes, Quacks, and quacks. I thought I was the only person who liked this. Oh my god, I thought it was absolutely incredible. And I I emailed the person. I don't know who it is. I didn't know the person. And emailed and said, I've got to say, this is one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen. I was such a fan. Um, and Well, I'm glad to hear that because at the time I wrote a review that was really glowing and I seemed to be the only one and I was really surprised by that. So I'm glad to hear that someone else enjoyed it as well. I thought it was really good. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And this, I, I, yeah, great. I mean, there's, there's definitely a place for... Um, Mrs. Brown's Boys, definitely. It's not my cup of tea, but ten. It's it's the cup yeah. of tea of ten million people. So you know what? However many people watch it, I mean, I, I really wish there was shows like French and Saunders. So when I look at uh, Normal People, which is an amazing drama, it mm-hmm. um, you know the the actors are incredible. 
there's a tiny bit of me that thinks, oh, I wish French and Saunders could have a go at this. Um, <laughs> that would be amazing. It would be amazing. Or, you know, Handmaid's Tale, you wish French and Saunders were still going. <laughs> and I'm such a fan of theirs. When I've met each of them, I've said to them, oh, please, can you just come back for a one-off? I, I just love it. There was a show commissioned ages ago with this um, the genius who makes shooting stars called Lisa Clark, and she pitched a show which was an all-female sketch show called Titty Bang Bang with Lucy Montgomery in. Yes, yeah. And I was really, really willing that to be another French and Saunders. Um, but it just never quite ha- happened, really. So so anyway, so I look at loads and loads of comedy and love it at the moment. You know, there's I love Veep. I love the thick of it. I love In the Shadows. Uh, is it In the Shadows, it's called? The, what We Do in the Shadows. I love What We yeah. Do in the Shadows. It's just amazing. I love Anchorman and Will Ferrell. Um, you know, I thought on the comic relief thing, Little Britain was great. So, um, so yeah, and I, I, I watched Sally Forever, mm-hmm. about half of it. I couldn't quite get into it. And I wondered, Sophie, whether that was just me, you know, a bit um, missing being in that role where you could give a break to people. I love catastrophe. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it'd be, it, it's, it's a really privileged position I was in to – to help support geniuses like those people. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I was missing that a bit and so couldn't really enjoy Sally Forever. I don't know. (laughs) Did you love Sally Forever? Yes, it does feel a little bit different. I thought it felt a little bit more improvised. I'm not sure if that was actually the case, but um, to me it felt a bit more like they had a sort of rough idea of what was going on in each scene and then they just sort of winged it i'm not sure if that was just how it came across but to me it the tone seemed a little bit different because it seemed a bit more like they were improvising i guess kind of like what they do in dear joan and jerica i love dear joan um, and jerica i absolutely yeah, love that it's brilliant <laughs> and i think as well that is um bringing her and vicky pepperdine some more fans because i know quite a lot of people mainly women sort of my age who aren't that familiar with Julia Davis, but they absolutely love Dear Joan and Jerrica. So hopefully that will bring some more fans in as well. Yeah, I tried to play that to my 18 and 19-year-old son, um, <clears throat> who's super bright at Cambridge and got a silly sense of humour. He just didn't get it. And then where we live in London, we uh, were about 100 yards from Hampstead Heath. So we bump into Julia Davis and Julian probably... Uh, more often than you you know kind of once every six months I guess so as in semi-often oh right and recently we bumped into her and I said to my son Maximilian oh this is Julia Davis he went sorry who's that I mean the woman who writes really <laughs> disgusting stuff and does that radio agony and show about paedophilia it was like oh my god that's disgusting <laughs> <laughs> but I love John and Jerrica it's amazing yeah it's brilliant <laughs> Um, so, uh, before we finish, um, do you want to let people know where they can sort of find you on, uh, Twitter and anything else that's going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, to be honest, they should just find you cause your, your podcasts <laughs> were definitely worth listening to. I'm on uh, Stuart Murphy 100, but to be honest, if you're not into opera, there's absolutely no reason to follow <laughs> me. Um, but yeah, I always love, I follow loads of people, uh, talking about comedy and, Yeah, it's just nice to speak to a fellow fan, Sophie, to be honest. It's nice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smashed Prawns in a Milky Basket. You can find us on Twitter at Julia Davis, QOTD, and you can find me at It's Sophie Davis. 
This podcast was edited by Alex Bondek with original music by Martin Ford and Matt Bond.